You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts 25, and at this time, ushers are coming forward uh, here in the worship theater as well as in the live stream theater as they are bringing some Bibles and some pens and and some um, connection cards. If you need to write any notes, they would love to be able to equip you with that. We would love everyone to have a copy of God's Word as we look to God's Word. We just don't want you looking at me because that's just a lot of ugly over a long period of time. Instead, be looking at the beautiful, gorgeous Word of God. And so uh, have a copy of God's Word in your hand. Acts 25 is where we will be at this morning and trusting that God will do a good work in our lives as we continue through this amazing book of Acts, um, hearing God's word. And so if you need one of those Bibles, just raise your hand, they will give that to you. And if you do not have a Bible at home of your own, please take that as a gift. Um, That is uh, the greatest gift that anyone can give someone um, of material object in that way because of it being God's word. Today we're going to look at How does one stand strong for Christ in a hostile, angry, volatile world? Our society is, it's smoldering, it seems, just like a volcano just waiting to erupt or a time bomb just ticking, just waiting to go off. And in so many ways, we, we just see a very volatile world. We, we saw in a recent federal election what took place with uh, such anger and hostility in, in that campaign. And now even post-election, as we continue to hear outrage and we hear talk about Wexit or Western independence or separation of some sort. And, and, and you just see the anger and the frustration that is in our nation. Or, or just recently, last Saturday night, Don Cherry makes a remark on Co- Coach's Corner, and kaboom, it just goes crazy. People who don't even follow or know much about hockey, everyone, everyone has an opinion of it. And if you're like me, you're probably really sick of hearing everyone's opinions. And then a few days later, a commentator or a correspondent on the social, the TV show uh, on Canadian television, no one knew of her or of the talk show, I think, before. She then weighed in on the Don Cherry situation and on hockey players and made some um, very kind of mm, interesting remarks. And again, kaboom, everyone is, fire her, get rid of her, and she needs to pay. And this past week, our, our mayor here in Kelowna made a comment on a police investigation. And, and I guess the timing wasn't quite right, and, and, and perhaps it seemed to lack some sense I had a hard time kind of even following the, the storyline, but there were people upset and, and, and concerned, and so he was then retracting and issuing an apology because people were hurt and offended, and it just seems there's so much sensitivity. We're all snowflakes and, and, and just so fragile, and it, it just, that, that's just like where it, it's, it, it's, you know, like, like I said, a, a volcano just waiting to erupt, a bomb waiting to go off, and, and if, if things aren't said quite right, just kaboom you know, and, and, and y- y- if you don't say something correct, it'll be criticized, and I kind of 
You've probably seen this on social media. It's kind of comical, actually, this meme that, that came out, a new device for people who get offended quite easily. And, 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 and it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, just have it handy because, I mean, we're just that kind of a society. And, 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 and all joking aside, this isn't, I mean, I mean, there's some point where you just really have to like, oh, really? You've got to be kidding me. But I guess we could say, and I oftentimes hear my wife say this at least once a week, when we hear something in the news, we read something, we talk about it, and, and she comes up with this statement, and it is so true, it's, it's a world gone mad. And it's just so very, very true. It just seems the sensitivity, and, 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 and yet on a more serious note about this world being mad, it seems that if you hold to biblical, strong biblical convictions, you're in trouble. Society seems to declare acceptance and tolerance when it comes for, to all people, all lifestyles, all choices, except if you hold to the teaching, the values, the principles of God's word. Then you are open for attack, ridicule. You are seen as narrow-minded, judgmental, and bigoted. And that is just becoming more and more the realization. Albert Moeller, a great person for you to follow and to, to read and, and, and uh, to see his, his, his website as well as um, the daily podcast that he gives, just gives great insights. He mentioned of the new reality right now, especially in Canada and Europe. He singled out our nations and he said it's coming to, the, to America as well. And basically he said this this past week, if a person runs for political office but is a member of a church that believes that homosexuality is a sin, chances are good that those views will be held against them and they will be labeled and unfit for political office. That's just the day that we're living in. If you just heard in the last few days, a musician who was asked to perform at the halftime concert in, in Dallas for um, Thanksgiving, game, Thanksgiving Day game in the United States for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, she was asked to sing at halftime, and, and then upon realization of a few things, it, it was also the, she found out it was, and she was actually excited to, to find out it was also the 22nd, 20 year, 22 years in a row the Dallas Cowboys have kicked off the Salvation Army Kettle Campaign on that day at that game. And, and her social media site was all excited that she gets to partner with the Salvation Army, but then some folks on her Instagram account started to say, but the Salvation is homophobic. And so now she is, is threatening to cancel singing at this concert at halftime at this football game unless the Salvation Army gives a substantial uh, donation to LGBTQ rights and, and, and programs. And it's like we're being held hostage if you hold these kind of views. This past summer when an anti-abortion movie in North America and especially here in Canada came out called Unplanned, it caused quite the uproar. It, it, it caused protests, lots of social media controversy, as well as threats, demonstrations, even at some movie theaters, cancellations, and very limited showings, even in our own city, because of the controversy. Last week, a nephew of ours in Saskatchewan in grade 11 was in his homeroom, and the teacher brought up the subject of transgenderism and how great it is that a man can now have a baby. When he my nephew questioned the teacher and asked for some clarity on what his teacher was saying and shared an opposing conviction based on the word of God, the teacher became quite indignant with him. 
and in front of the class said some pretty incredible things. In their discourse, she told him that he believes in a mythical God and that he should really go to the Catholic school down the street because they too believe in a mythical God. He asked her uh, in, in the conversation once again, he said, well, if I was Muslim, would you say that Allah is a mythical God? And she avoided that question. There are times, folks, I believe that the storm clouds are on the horizon and the wave of, of controversy is only beginning and it will start to threaten us even more in our churches, in our work, in how we conduct our business, our banking, in the products we buy. And there's going to be a time where we, and I believe it is coming more and more, where we will need to take a stand, a stand for Jesus. But how do we stand for Jesus in a broken, angry, hostile, volatile world? In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 15, it says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. God's word calls us to stand up, to speak his truth, and be willing, if necessary, to pay the price. For our convictions based on the word of God. And at times, we need to stand up and step into certain conversations and controversy. We need to go in a spirit and an attitude of prayer and dependency upon the, upon the Lord. But there are times, I believe, that we are already starting, and, and some of you have maybe been here already, where it becomes wrong for you not to stand up and share your convictions, to stay quiet. You are offending, you are sinning even against God when things are being said and things are being done in a way that isn't right with the word of God. And the, the Holy Spirit conscience is working in your heart in that, but fear of man, fear of what others might say. We must be willing, and are we willing to pay the price for ridicule, mockery, the loss of a job, career, loss of money, friendships? Are we going to be true to Christ? Or are we going to be true to our reputation, our money, our career, what others in relationships we would have? Are we willing to pay the price? How do we respond biblically to this with gentleness and respect when it comes to some of the following? Here are some of the, the major things that I believe we need to be equipped for and have the answers for. The LGBTQ plus and transgenderism, how do we respond biblically and lovingly towards that? Abortion, your classmate comes to you, a family member, a friend comes to you and says, I'm thinking about having an abortion, what should I do? How do we respond biblically and in love to not say something about that? Not to warn them is, as God's word would reveal to us, is participating in murder. How do we respond? How do we, how do we stand up? How do we speak forth with God's truth? and yet with his love. Another huge one that's gonna be facing us in some major ways, and, and it's already happening even though probably we're not even aware to the extent it's called MAID, Medically Assistance in Dying. Basically, doctor-assisted suicide. It's happening more and more. Read the obituaries. You read them and, and uh, people are declaring, I'm going out on my terms. I'm not going to let cancer take me out on, on its terms or ALS. And so they get this doctor-assisted death. 
people declare, and, and it's going to come to this, not even just for um, medical conditions that are beyond any sort of medical help, but even things like depression or fear, and just say, I don't want to live anymore. And we're going to have people desiring to use these maid services for that. How do we respond? How do we respond lovingly and biblically? And as your pastor, this has become a growing burden as I just see what's on the horizon and what is coming, and I believe it is our church's job to prepare you and for us to prepare and challenge and encourage one another for the storm clouds that are coming. Equip you in, with your children, parents, and, and, and grandparents with, with your grandchildren. Prepare the family of God for what is coming. There's going to be darker days of head unless revival comes. This past week in your e-news, and I'm sure you all read it, I encourage you to keep doing that. In the go time, there are some websites there that will be just the starting of some. If you have some, you would also recommend, send them our way, and we would love to have a look at them. But some, some websites that you can go on and, 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 and you can look at and, and will help you to grow and to build a biblical mindset and mind view when it comes to dealing with, with various issues that we're seeing in our world. Well, here in, in the book of Acts, getting to our, our, our text this morning, this all, I believe, is going to be very helpful and is going to make some sense for us here in a few moments because we see how the Apostle Paul takes the stand and how he stands strong for Jesus in the midst of a very hostile situation. Paul was living the words that Jesus said would happen to his followers. And these words in, in Luke chapter 21 that Jesus said what would happen to his followers, he, 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 he said in Luke 21, he says, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to run. No, is that what, what Jesus says? No, this will be your opportunity to bear witness, to stand for Christ. And so today we're going to work through two chapters. Yes, that's right. We're going to be here a long time as we work through chapter 25 and chapter 26 of, of, of the book of Acts. And you say, wow, usually we don't take two chapters. I know we're going to, to work through it, and, and I think we'll do it in good time. So don't worry if you all of a sudden you think you're pot roast or you're going to miss the rider game a little later on today. Your pot roast won't burn because we'll get out in good time still. But really what happens is chapter 25 sets up what takes place in chapter 26 that we'll get to in a little bit. And we're going to do an overview of these two chapters. And then we're going to draw some, some conclusions that we see in the life of Paul and how we can apply these practical truths to our lives as well. And as we learn from the Apostle Paul how to live and stand for Christ when the world stands opposed to us. And so how do we do this? How do we stand for Christ? Well, last week, um, if you will remember and you uh, can see the map there, you might not be able to see sort of the, the uh, names of the cities very clearly, but some arrows will help in a moment. In Acts 24, as we were working through that, Antonius Felix was the Roman governor who left Paul in prison for two years. That's right. He left Paul in prison in Caesarea for two years. However, as history tells us that Felix allowed a, another riot to take place in the city of Caesarea with some Jews that resulted in Jews being executed, others being imprisoned, and others being stripped of their wealth. A, a, a coalition, a group of Jews then went from, from Caesarea to Rome, and they complained before Nero, and Nero recalled Felix and said, get back here now. We've got some discussions to have here. 
Now, now, Nero at this time, he was a more stable emperor over the entire world now. Nero oversees the entire world. What the, what's going on in Caesarea, these are kind of like puppet kings that are under his control. So Nero is the boss. Nero is overseeing with great authority everything that is taking place here in uh, in the known world at the time. So here we have Nero. He, he wasn't nearly as bad a character as he was later in his life. At this point in the story, he actually wasn't too bad. He was more stable, and it would be later on he degenerated to very weird and extreme behavior and incredible, incredible violence against Christians, as history tells us. So Nero recalled Felix. He says, get over here, Felix. And he strips him of his authority, and so now Felix is done, and uh, so, so he's no longer in charge there, and, and apparently Felix just barely escaped with his life. Um, Nero was almost going to have him killed, but actually his brother spoke in for him, and, and so Felix's life was saved. So now Nero's thinking, I've got to send somebody else there to go and oversee this mess, so in comes Porcius Felix, Festus. So now we have Porcius Festus coming in, and he's a straightforward, take charge kind of guy, no nonsense, let's clean up this mess that, that, that was left here by Felix. And so right away, he, he gets to Caesarea, goes from Rome to Caesarea, and he's like, I'm going right to Jerusalem. As soon as he gets to Caesarea, he's like, I got to get to the bottom of this Jewish situation, especially with Paul, this guy that's been in prison. And so he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders. Now in Chapter 25, verse 2, we'll pick it, up from, uh, pick it up at this point, and it says, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush on the way so they could kill him. So, so Festus goes to Jerusalem, and they're like, oh, Festus, hey, why don't we have a little trial here with Paul, have a little discussion with him, and we'll have some guys not just rough him up, but we'll have some guys kill him along the way. Well, Festus doesn't necessarily know this, but he's also like, eh, I don't think we're going to do that. If you want to have a trial, if you want to do something about Paul, you come to Caesarea. And so Paul, having been in prison for two years, uh, is just, I'm sure, biding his time wondering what is going on. And, and, and so I'm sure he's thinking at this time, another trial? You've got to be kidding me. And so, and so at the end of the situation here with Paul, he doesn't want to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die if he goes there. And so in verse 11, you will see in, in chapter 25, we see all of a sudden the apostle Paul saying, I appeal to Caesar. When he would have said that, that would have been a mic drop opportunity or, or uh, situation because all of a sudden, as he says, uh, I appeal to Caesar, the room would have been quiet, and he's like, ooh, he just pulled out the big gun. Uh-oh. It was the right of every Roman citizen, if they felt they were being tried unfairly by the justice system, that they could say those words, I appeal to Caesar, and they would be taken and put on trial before Caesar. And so this was running a risk from Paul, but he knew that if they, even if they released him as a free man, he would be killed. They knew if he went to Jerusalem, he would be killed. So he figured, I need to go. God told me I'm going to go to Rome anyways and proclaim the gospel. I guess I'll go in chains. And so I appeal to Caesar. And so all of a sudden, things just got interesting. But then in verse 12, Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. However, Festus had a bit of a problem. There were no basis, to, no basis for charges against Paul. 
He's like, he's done nothing wrong. I'm going to appear weak if I send the Apostle Paul to Nero, and then he stands before him and said, I don't know why I'm here. I did nothing wrong. I, the things they accused me of, there was no witnesses. I mean, everyone's testifying to that. I did nothing criminal, nothing worthy of death. And so Festus is thinking, oh boy, okay, he's going to go to Caesar, but now we have to find some trump. We need to trump up some charges. We need to figure it out. Enter King Agrippa. So King Agrippa now comes, and his, and Bernice, that's a great name, um, and, and Bernice was his sister wife. And we'll get to that in a moment. So King Agrippa II was the puppet king overseeing a, a region of northern uh, Judea in Lebanon, as well as he had authority over the temple, and he was very familiar with Jewish ways. Now, he was part of the great Herod family, the Herod dynasty, that had caused great havoc for the cause of Christ. His great-grandfather, King Herod, was the one that murdered the babies right after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and had all the little baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem murdered. His granduncle, King Antipas, beheaded John the Baptist. His father, King Agrippa I, executed James, the apostle John's brother. He also imprisoned Peter in Acts 12 and then was eaten by worms. So this is a very interesting dynasty, a very interesting family. And so King Agrippa II, though he was not a Jew, was incredibly knowledgeable of Judaism. So he and his sister wife, yes, he was having an incestuous relationship with his sister that was not even his half-sister, his full-blooded sister that was a couple years younger than him. They decided to come to Caesarea from the north to pay a visit, a royal kind of meet and greet, a goodwill gesture to come and meet Porcius Festus. And so in verse 14, we see that the dilemma of Paul comes up. And finally, Agrippa says in verse 22, you'll see he says, I'd like to hear from the man myself. I'd like to hear from this interesting fellow that you're talking about. And so in chapter 25, verse 23, it says, So the very next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So here you have this incredible scene. They're in this great auditorium, and all the who's who are there from this region of the world. King Agrippa and Bernice. You have Porcius Festus, and then you have military commanders and personnel, and you have the prominent business leaders, the influential, the who's who people of society, and they are there for a good time. In Paul's speech, starting in... Uh, or actually, we'll, we'll pick up now in chapter 26. Festus then gives Paul an opportunity to speak here in front of this grand uh, array of people. So in chapter 26, now in verse 2, here is Paul's opportunity to speak. And he says, I consider myself fortunate that this is before you, King Agrippa. I'm not going to make my defense today against all the accusations especially because you are familiar with all the customs and current controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. When Paul says, I beg you to listen to me patiently, what we have here in Acts 26 in these verses is just a summary of his speech. This would have been Paul's longest speech. It's the longest one recorded in the book of Acts. But this speech probably would have went on for a number of hours. The culture of the day loved this sort of thing. They would line up 
volunteer for jury duty because it was just so awesome. They loved hearing discourses and speeches like this. I guess you could say this was the original social media before they had uh, phones and tablets and the internet. And so as you read Paul's defense in in verses 4 to 23, I encourage you, if you haven't read that yet, as we remind you in the e-news each week to give you a heads up on where we're going, encourage you to read it today that will help bring it all in perspective. As Paul starts to give his defense, it wasn't a defense of, get me out of the prison, I'm here without cause, this isn't fair, this is unrighteous what you're doing, injustice and blah, blah, blah. He doesn't go off on a tirade like that. Instead, Paul uses this as a great opportunity to share his story, to share his testimony, to share the gospel. And so he declares before King Agrippa and the gathered crowd how Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection was all the full and complete fulfillment of the Old Testament. He would have walked them through the scripture verses that would have said that that, that prophesied about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, would have talked about the other prophecies about how the Messiah would suffer and die but would rise again before his body would see decay. He would have walked them through the Old Testament. It was a walk through the Old Testament law and prophets and, and would have just showed them so clearly and so plainly that the logical conclusion of everything in the Old Testament is Jesus and here he is. And then this Jesus impacted my life. This Jesus changed me and he shared his story. And so as he shares his story of how he encounters Jesus on the road to the Damascus and how now he's been called and commissioned and now he just wants to tell everyone about Jesus, he wants to tell Jews, he wants to tell Gentiles, he wants to tell everyone the good news about Jesus Christ. You can't shut him up. And then in verse 24, you will see Festus, Porcius Festus, love that name. Porcius Festus cries out, enough! You are out of your mind. You are absolutely crazy. And with that, the hearing ends. Every one of Paul's speeches, he either, like he gets shut down prematurely, he gets a punch in the face um, on, on one other occasion, we will see, or else he gets beaten up. Like he never gets to finish a speech. Like how unfair is that? And so here we see Paul being called crazy, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, they all huddle together and they're like, this this guy doesn't deserve death. I mean, it's a little weird what he believes, but but we should really let him go. But then they're like, eh, but he did pull the Rome card, so to Rome he shall go. And Lord willing, next week we'll see Paul get on the cruise liner to set sail to Rome a cruise liner called Shipwreck, and uh, we will tackle that next week. Now, these two chapters, every word of God's word is there for a reason. Every story, every detail paints together a grand picture of the great providence of God. How God works in the little details and even the frustrating things in life that God's purpose is being built even in your life here today. Here is Paul, you think about it, two years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Nothing wrong, nothing deserving of it. And that season in prison probably at times was very frustrating. 
But we see how God can use the trials, even the mess, the political red tape that at times we're in, because God is always growing, preparing his servants, his children, but also an audience for his goodwill and for his plan. God can and is at work, even in the prison situations we may feel ourselves in. Today, whether you're in a time of season, a season of waiting, maybe a season of suffering, of being bewildered, where it seems like very little is happening and you're just going through the motions, God is at work and he desires to do a good work in your life, in that situation, whatever it is that you're facing. It took two years for Paul to be in prison, to be in this incredible opportunity on this day, to be able to share before the who's who of the people, to share with the most influential people in this part of this world, and eternity will reveal to us how many lives were changed. I wouldn't be surprised if one day in heaven we will meet people who said, I was there that day when Paul gave his speech, and it impacted me, and I went home a changed man. I went home a changed woman. We gave our lives to Jesus Christ. We started to follow him that day. And the testimonies that have come, no doubt that we will hear from that day. God never wastes an opportunity, but eternity will show what seeds were planted on that day. Paul made the most of this opportunity. May God give you and I the grace and the strength and the perseverance to do the same. So for the remainder of our morning today, I want to give you three, there's at least three ways that we can learn from the Apostle Paul how we can stand strong in a hostile, volatile, angry, hurting world. It's kind of a long title, but you just have to get all the words in there to help describe it. I'm probably missing a few other descriptive words there. And the first way that we can stand strong in a hostile, volatile, angry, hurting world is time spent with God daily. As a follower of Christ, Paul, he endured so much. You just read, read about this time in prison and the beatings and, 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 and the punch in the face he had at the command of the high priest. We saw that earlier. But prior to even this two years, Paul had written already in 2 Corinthians 11, Verse 24, it starts, he shares a little bit of the suffering he endured. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, because they were only allowed to beat them 39 times. So, or, so it, they always called it 49, so just to make sure that they didn't get a little half one in there, um, it was just 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is just his life, and you can continue to go on, and then he says, and above all of that, he says, out of all the pressure of all the churches, because he cared so much for people and for the church churches he was helping to establish. And yet we look at here, the Apostle Paul, two years in prison, a life of just 
torment and suffering and all of this that he's gone, gone on before this in his life. And here we see some important words that we see in chapter 26, verse 1. Here's Paul in the presence of this impressive crowd in an environment that is meant, this was all trumped up to intimidate and overpower him because just at the right time with all the colors, the scarlet, the red represent all the colors, the army, everyone in there, they, right at the right time they bring in Paul. And Paul was to believe to be, again, I'm not, this is two weeks in a row that I'm, I, I'm picking on these kind of people, but um, Paul was considered, a lot of people felt he was a short, bald man. Not picking on bald people or anything like that, it's just, just a statement. And so here is little Paul, he comes into this intimidating, intimidating situation, and he's not intimidated. And, and you look at the words here, and there's a, he, he gestures them with his hands, which is a sign of strength, a sign of confidence. And he says, I consider it an honor to be here with you today. Where does this kind of confidence, where does this kind of strength come, come from to be able to stand like this in front of a crowd of intimidating people? And understand this, that Paul was not some superhero personality or super apostle in that he had a special touch on him that none of us could have as followers of Jesus Christ. He was a man surrendered to the will and to the ways of the Holy Spirit in his life. He was a man of faith. He was a man of perseverance. He was a man who had a deepening relationship with God. He didn't possess any superhero qualities or abilities, and yet he was able to withstand and endure so much because this was a man who carved out time, no doubt daily, to meet with God. Look at in verse 22, he says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. How are we strengthened? How do we have the help that comes from God? Time with God daily. That's his source of help, his source of strength. You see, there's something about the Apostle Paul. Before he stood before the great throne of man, he stood before even a greater throne, the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, coming to, into his presence every day through worship, through prayer, through dependency and, and humbling himself before the Lord. And for us today, folks, before we stand before the throne of our boss, our teachers, our parents, other authorities in our lives, we have the opportunity daily to bow before a greater throne, the throne of the King of Kings. And for us here today, as it was for Paul, there is something different something great about the man, the woman, the young adult, the teenager, the child who spends time with God daily. There's just something different about your life. As we humble ourselves in his word, spend time in worship and prayer, not, to, not just talking little check mark, just, you know, kind of like, okay, I'm doing my nice little thing, but, but taking that God time in worship. Jesus implied this in in the prayer that, that he gave in the Lord's prayer, that this was a daily prayer, that daily prayer of dependency, that daily prayer of, God, I need you, humbling ourselves before God. It's in a God time daily that we can gain God's perspective to our problems. It is through God time daily that that foundation built on the rock gets built even stronger in our lives. It's through God time daily in the word and in worship and prayer 
that we commune with God. That opportunity is available for all who make time, who come with a humble heart before the Lord of dependency. You remember that after Paul's very dramatic conversion, an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, I mean, just think how the news spread. Terrorist Paul, church persecutor Paul, becomes a follower of Christ, become a disciple. He's become a follower of the way. What happened to Paul? I'm sure that they were ready to book him into men's breakfasts and plan some crusades and get him to speak at this year's Christmas banquet and, and all kinds of other opportunities at the mayor's prayer breakfast. Let's get the Apostle Paul, poster child for, for what God has done. Terrorist, now saved son of the Most High God. He is now a son of God. How does that happen? And so I'm sure... No, did that happen to Paul? Did he start his ministry right away? Did he start going and preaching and proclaiming Christ? No. We find out in Galatians chapter 1 that actually he sought the Lord in three years of learning and study. I mean, I'm sure that they had great plans for him, but here Paul surrendered himself to the teaching of God's word. He would have been considered an expert, though. He's a Pharisee. He was an expert in the law. But everything he knew about God had to be changed in, in his understanding. Now that he understood who Jesus was, it needed to be reevaluated in light of his new understanding of Jesus. And Paul's ministry, his public ministry, didn't begin until he spent time in humility, obscurity, in the backside of the desert in Arabia. You can read about that. And he says, there, Jesus taught me. Was that Jesus through the word? Was that Jesus coming and visiting him personally? Was it Jesus through the witness of the Holy Spirit in his life? We don't know, but Jesus, he says, taught me in those years. And the best thing that you and I can do for ourselves personally, for our families, for our spouses, for our brothers, our sisters, for our coworkers, our classmates, for those that we rub shoulders with, the best thing that we can do is a growing, deepening God time daily in our lives. This deepening and abiding relationship is what allowed Paul to stand strong there on that day. That's why we need to have God's word, as he wrote in Ephesians, he says, having the washing of the word over our lives, exposing areas of sin, areas of weakness, and finding his strength, his healing, his forgiveness. Second way that we can stand strong in a hostile, volatile, angry, hurting world is to know and share the gospel with urgency. Look at this crowd that, that had assembled in, in the end of Acts 25 and into chapter 26. Paul could have never, even if he would have established some sort of you know, Google Hangouts or, or, or Facebook Live event or something like that, there's no way he could have ever assembled this crowd of important people, of dignitaries, of influential people. He never could have done that on his own. And he could have taken time to declare his innocence. He could have been pushing for the overhauling of the judicial system that just wasn't fair so that other people wouldn't be treated this way. Or he could use this as an opportunity to share the gospel and to share his story. And he chose the latter. 
Paul gives one of the most detailed accounts of how he met Jesus. He, he, we have other accounts that he gave in his, uh, the story in, in Acts 9, but then I believe it's Acts 21, and then here again in Acts 26. But this is the most detailed version that he gives. And Paul tells us in verse 18 that Jesus then told him what he ought to do then for the rest of his life. And what Jesus told him that he ought to do for the rest of his life is what you and I are to do for the rest of our lives. And he then also tells him, this is the power of the gospel. This is what will happen to brothers, to sisters, to coworkers, to family members, to that atheist in your life, to that person who seems so far from God. Here's the thing that will happen when they encounter Jesus. Look in verse 18, underline in your Bible, put a star beside it because it's such an amazing verse. Here's what Jesus will do, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is such a powerful verse. That's why you're gonna underline it and that's why we're gonna return to it when this series is over. It's gonna be the kickoff uh, message text from our, for our Christmas series because this has just Christmas all over it. Like, I don't see wise men in there. I don't see shepherds. No, you see the gift. You see what Christ has done, and that's the message we have to get out. He came to declare freedom for the captive, sight for the blind, forgiveness for any and all sin. Get this message out, Jesus told Paul. Get this message out, God's word tells you and I today. They will go from spiritual blindness to all of a sudden having clear vision and, and growing spiritual understanding in their lives. They will go from spiritual darkness, spiritual death, to spiritual light and life. They will grow, go from the grasp of Satan into the hands of God, the forgiveness of sins, and a place secured in heaven forever. This verse is amazing. And it's a reality that anyone and all can experience. Have you experienced this reality in your life? We can and we must learn and be challenged by Paul's example and be ready to share the gospel anytime, anywhere, any place, any person. And this is an important question and this is part of preparing you for what is to come. And this is something that we all ought to be growing and getting stronger and better at. We have the opportunity, and when the opportunity comes, we jump at it, and it is to share the gospel. Do you know how to share the gospel in your own words? Yeah, we can give a gospel track, or we can point people to a website. More importantly, we need to have the gospel on our lips with, with his love in our hearts to call people to a relationship with him could you verbalize the gospel if we spent time at the end of the service? What is the gospel if you were asked that question? Well, here's it in a very short way, and, and, and um, you can add a lot more detail to it, but this is the Coles notes. This is the kind of just a helpful understanding that we have to see in our minds and be able to verbalize, and it is, first of all, that God is holy. Second of all, we are sinful. And that sin causes a separation between us and God, and that means eternal separation from God. And that Jesus Christ, though, is the cure. 
He, the promised Old Testament Messiah, the one who was promised, and you look at the over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, every one of them, every one of them happened in, in and around the birth of Jesus Christ. And then there was more of his life and his death and his resurrection. We have all these prophecies about Jesus. Christ is the cure. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it's where we see sin and death conquered. It causes us to be reconciled with God, not on our merits, not on our good works, but all on what Christ has done at the cross for us. So God is holy, we are sinful, Jesus is the cure, and then, but we must respond. You just can't, a lot of people believe this information, they know it, but have never surrendered their hearts. We must repent. Paul in, in verse 20 even mentions that. He says, we must repent. Basically, we turn away from sin. We, we turn away from worldliness. We turn away from our agenda. And we follow his agenda. We follow his path. And as he goes on to say, we turn to God performing deeds in keeping with repentance, meaning our lives should change. As we continue to grow, we're going to look more and more like Christ. Listen to this statement. You can't take hold of God if we don't let go of the world. You can't have a relationship with God if you're still holding on to the things of this world. It's we believe it, but have we surrendered our hearts truly to God? We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. But even Jesus' half-brother James tells us that our faith is never alone that a saving faith is never alone, that we change and that there is accompanying deeds and a lifestyle that starts to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we must be ready to share the gospel. God is holy. We are sinful. Christ the cure. And that we must respond. We must make a personal response and then push people. Will you respond to Jesus? This is the good news. This is better than a cure for cancer. It's better than having a successful career. It's better than having that large pile of money that you're working and striving for and hoping for and crossing your fingers and praying for. And, and it's better than that. The gospel, the good news, is better than any of that. It's better than having everything all around you just fine, you know, model family, model marriage, model house. It's, it's better than that. There is a peace that we can know even in the midst of the chaos. There is the promise of life after death, heaven or hell. And our job is to be faithful, sharing the gospel, the good news with others. We need to know and share the gospel with urgency. Who are you praying for to come to Christ? Who are you inviting into your life? We have the best news ever and we're hoarding it are we ashamed of Jesus? This message has caused me to examine my own heart in this area. And so oftentimes I say, I'm busy about the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is telling others about Jesus personally, not just this way on the form that the Lord allows me to have on a Sunday morning, but daily in my life, in my conversations with our neighbors. We're planning some great Christmas events, our Christmas dinner, and then a special presentation. It will be a fun evening together, but the gospel will be shared on 
December the 15th on a Sunday evening. In fact, any Sunday in, into the month of December, any Sunday is a time to invite friends to come to church. We've got room. So great to see this room so full, so great to know there's so many more in the overflow or in the live stream room. We can change that. We can go to a larger theater. Thank the Lord for that. Christmas events are going to be a wonderful season. Our first message, our kickoff, the sermon series in a few weeks. I'm so excited we're going to finish Acts. We just can't jump to Christmas, even though the lights and trees and that are all going up. But who are you praying for to come to Christ? Who can you share the gospel with this week? This is our call. This is our mission. Higher and above anything else. And then thirdly, care more for the souls of people than winning the argument. We stand strong in a hostile, volatile, angry world by caring more for the souls of people than winning the argument. Notice Paul's response in verse 25. It's kind of funny here where, you know, Paul is just getting called out. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. What do you think you are? You're a lunatic. He's just getting it, right? And, and Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. He's like, no, I'm not. I, I'm sound. I'm, I'm not crazy. He's probably like, you're the crazy guy because you don't believe this. Like, it's so obvious who Jesus is. But notice the respect that he has. He says, but I'm speaking true and rational words. He's not amping it up. He's not getting all fired up and angry back at him. And Agrippa said to Paul, and, and he's so angry, he says, in such a short time, you think you could persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul, look at his response again, whether short or long, in a sense, I've got all day. I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He's basically saying, hey, I want you all free. I, you think I'm crazy. No, I'm the most sanest guy in the room, and I want you to be free to have your sins forgiven, to have life eternal, to have a relationship, to bow at the throne of God daily, and I can come into his presence and be encouraged and strengthened even when my life is hard and the suffering and the struggle that has been going on. I am just as passionate for Jesus as, as I was on the day when Jesus met me. You know, if Jesus showed up here, we wouldn't like him very, or if, if the Apostle Paul showed up and preached a sermon, we probably wouldn't like him very much. He would be going from preaching to meddling really fast. In fact, we'd probably want to run him off the stage rather quickly because he's just... But we see the heart, the passion. And Paul is saying to the king who just called him crazy, he said, I want you, I want everyone here to come to know Jesus. I want you to see that he was the promised Messiah, that you can be reconciled to God. He has such a care for the souls of people. He's not looking at being right. He's just sharing Jesus. Back to the story of my nephew and his teacher as we close this morning. When the news hit our family chat that we have, there's 29 of us on it. That's my siblings and their children, there's, cousins, there's nieces and nephews, and my parents are on that, and so there's some pretty hot texting that goes back and forth from certain times, as there will be this afternoon as the Rough Riders play and, and, and that, but, but when the news hit the family chat, I've got some pretty fired up relatives. Fire the teacher! Take this to the press! Take this to the school board! This is injustice! This is wrong! And my sister did call the 
school board chair, who is a strong Christian lady in the city. But she's in right now the fight of her career over some gay pride issues, and there's online petitions to see her removed as board chair and from her position at the, the table there. And she wanted the name of the teacher. She wanted to get to the bottom of it, and my sister wouldn't give it to her. She says, no, I'm not telling you the name of the teacher, the name of my son or the school or anything like that. She said, our son desires that his teacher come to Jesus. More important to him than being right. That con the conversations between my nephew and his teacher continued that day and over the next few days. My nephew asked her at one point, where is your hope in life? And she said, it's in being a good person. And he says, well, what if you have a bad day? Or what if you have a bad stretch of days? What is your hope? He went on to share the gospel with her where his hope was found. His hope is found in Jesus. He went on and shared the gospel with her, and at the end of one of their conversations, she gave my nephew a hug and said, oh, Wyatt, I just love you so much. That's caring more for the soul than winning an argument. And I know some of you are probably sitting here and you're thinking, oh, I just, you know. Would you just instead of... Um, would you join our family in praying for this teacher? To give our nephew wisdom, my sister and her husband wisdom, to know what to do in the larger scheme of this as they're praying through that. But you see, one of the things that we have to realize that some of the greatest antagonistic people and the greatest opponents that we have in our lives towards faith, towards the gospel, could very well be the closest to coming to Christ. Remember when Jesus said to, Acts, to, to Paul in Acts 26, and you can look at this in verse 14, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and what did Jesus say? Paul, why do you keep kicking against the goads? Why are you kicking in this way? And, and the goad stick was a, a stick that, that they would use with a, a point on it. And when the stubborn ox would, you know, kind of want to go their own way, they would take that pointy stick and they would, would use that or something like that to be able to poke them and to, to kind of prod them on and, and so that they know that as soon as they started kicking, they were getting a poke. So they'd stop kicking, be, stop being so stubborn already and just do what you're told to do. That's what the farmer was trying to get the ox to do. Here's Jesus telling Paul, he says, why are you so stubborn? You see, Paul, he was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit before he met him on the road to Damascus. Why do you keep kicking against it? You keep fighting. God was working perhaps already before or on the day that he watched Stephen being martyred and saw the faith that Stephen had, and yet Paul looked like he was so far from God, and yet he was so close. Today, if you're kicking against the goads about giving your heart to Jesus Christ, stop kicking and come to him today. Stop running and submit to him. Some of those people kicking the hardest might be the closest to come to Christ. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would learn from your word that primary and first of important is that for us to stand strong in these days, we need to be men and women 
young adults, teenagers who spend time with you. And I pray for each person here that there would be a growing God time daily in our lives. And from that, God, that then we would also be ready and willing to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel, the full gospel with others. And that we would have a greater love for people than wanting to always be right. To having a final say in the social media argument that we get in on. Oh, would we have the gospel on our lips and your love in our hearts. Pray we surrender to him today in that area. If you don't know him today and you've been kicking against the goads, we'd love to talk to you for you to come to know Jesus in a personal way or just even the way that I told you a little earlier, you can pray a prayer right where you're at today and surrender your life to him. And so Jesus, now we desire to worship you. We're broken, we're messed up. We all have our issues. We fall on our face in dependency before you, knowing that when we are weak and we know it and we're willing to admit it, we become strong. Strengthen us for the road ahead, for you will be with us.